0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Ephesians 4.11, where Paul writes these words, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you get all of that? Uh, That's one sentence, actually, in the original. (laughs) So... I think we should pray. What do you think? <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord Paul writes many things that are hard to understand, says Peter. And, Father, we would add that Peter does the same thing as well. And, Lord, we look to you this morning and we ask that you would be pleased to bless us, Father, as we look at the truths that are being put forth, as we, as we attribute the writing of this to the Apostle Paul, we're ever mindful of, that he did so under the superintendence and the inspiration of you, O Lord, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, O Lord, we call on you, uh, one the same, that you would be pleased to open our hearts and teach us, that you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would would, uh, instruct our hearts this morning, Lord, that we may come to understand these things, that we may come to perceive these things, and, Father, that we would perceive them in such a way that, Lord, we would be excited to align our hearts and lives with these things. So we ask not only for understanding, uh, uh, an empty understanding that would do nothing but uh, serve to uh, scratch a curious uh, theological itch, but that, Father, you'd be pleased to give us true understanding of these things, Lord, uh, that they would penetrate deeply into our hearts and that, Father, these verses would change the way that we walk and live and move and talk and serve you. So, oh Father, we pray, do this, funda- this foundational work uh, in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we, we come to what I believe is going to be the last message on the subject of the church. And uh, for the last, this will make the fourth week, we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 4. And as I've said, you know, if we're going to start in Ephesians 4, that's fine as long as we're mindful that there are three chapters that come before Ephesians 4. And too often we, we will sometimes forget that. And in those first three chapters, what's important about them is Paul has set before us what Christ has done for us and what Christ has done to us. We'll recall that Ephesians is written, is written for believers. It's written to the saints who are in Ephesus. So it's written for believers. Paul labors for three chapters to describe what God has done for us and to us in Christ Jesus. And he does this before he gives us any of what we call imperatives, which is where we uh, begin in chapter 4. Uh, Paul is asking us in verse 3 to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And you'll recall that three weeks ago uh, when I read those words, uh, I I, I issued somewhat of a challenge, and, and I include myself in this challenge. As we come up the steps on Sunday mornings, we do come up the steps because we, we we love theology. We we love to study our Lord. We love to study Scripture. We want to get Scripture right. We want to get our theology right. We don't want. Who wants to get it wrong? Who wants to come up here and learn something wrong and put something wrong into your life? That's not what we want to do. We're very eager. To get our theology right, but the challenge that before us: Are we equally eager to maintain the unity in the in the spirit and the bond of peace? And I think that's a challenge, isn't it? I think it's a challenge, and it may not even have been on our radar up until three weeks ago. Uh, but now, by God's grace, it's on our radar, and Paul is calling us to be eager to maintain this unity. And that's what the first six verses are about: unity. Then verses 7 and 8, 9 and 10, now these are about diversity. And, you know, the overarching message of this series we're doing on the church is to show the beauty of the church. I think that's another thing we need a challenge in. How often, when we're talking to our friends, do we talk to them about the beauty of the church? How often is that one of the first things we think about? But let's think about it. How, how much does God love the church? For God so loved the church that he what? You know, with, with the verse says, for God so loved the world that he gave uh, his only begotten son, whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But those who believe in, in Jesus, where do they go? They're brought into the church, right? There's one body, says Paul, Right? And the beautiful thing is that God is bringing people who are different together. To the first century mind, and it's hard for us to even get our minds wrapped around this because we didn't live in the first century, but one thing you never saw was Jews and Gentiles eating together. Now all of a sudden Jews and Gentiles are eating together And it's not a forced thing. They're actually, you can see, they're enjoying each other's company. You can see that there's intimacy between these groups. Now, what is this? You know, the watching world's looking at this, and they see the beauty of it. Would anybody describe hostility as beautiful? Hostility is the opposite. Hostility is ugly, isn't it? But intimate union with one another is beautiful. But it's it's an intimate union if you will, a unity that is diverse. You have Gentiles and Jews together, and and the wall of hostility, as Paul describes it, is brought down by the gospel. It's brought down by Christ so that these groups are brought together. And that's the wonderful thing as we think about the beauty of the church. There is no other organization or group in the world like the church because it is a, it is a unity that is diverse Um, if you look at verse 7 there after Paul you know if you look at verse 3 there were to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace then verse 4 he says one body one spirit uh, one hope verse 5 one Lord one faith one baptism verse 6 one God and father of all but then verse 7 but grace was given to each one of us you see there's the individuality and I made an application a couple of weeks ago in regards to this, you know, that trick question that uh, one of uh, my seminary professors used to ask us once in a while. You only, you know, It's one you can only get tripped up in once. You don't get tripped up in it a second time. But uh, Dr. Denny Proutot, who I hope to bring up again in this message, uh, he asked the question concerning marriage. What's more important in a marriage, the corporation or the individual? Now, when you hear that question asked for the first time, you think, well, okay, um, a lot of marriages end up in divorce because of selfishness, so the corporation, and you answer the corporation, and then the professor tells you, well, it was a trick question. The answer, what you should have said is, listen, there's a problem with the question because the question is causing you to pit two equally important matters against each other. The corporation is just as important as the individual, and the individual is just as important as the corporation. That that can be be mind-blowing when you first hear it. But that principle is being set forth right here. There is the unity. There is the corporation. But in the midst of the corporation, verse 7, there's each one of us. There's individuality. We're all different. You're allowed to be different. Guess what? You can be different. In fact, God has made us all how he has made us, hasn't he? And I don't mean to, I'm not bringing sin into this. You know, a common argument for sin is God has simply made me this way. You guys know me better. I'm not talking like that. But for the benefit of anyone who would hear this message later, I'm not saying that. But we're all different. We come from different places. And if you look at verse 7, we're all given different gifts, and and we're given different uh, giftedness in a different measure. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're not all gifted the same, not even close. You know, I mean, if you're ever given a choice of having me cook supper for you or work on your car, I will tell you right now, have me work on your car. Don't ask me to make supper for you. Maybe more about that in a little bit. Um, Not trying to make you hungry too early, but listen, my cooking would not make you hungry. No, trust me. Ask Tammy. Not make you hungry. Now, um, last week we began to look at verse 11. So we've got unity in verses 1 through 6. We've got diversity in verses 7 through 10. And in verse 11 we have maturity. Maturity. And we begin to look at that. You know, as we think about the gifts, verse 7, that have been given, um, Paul sets forth some gifts. And he talks about uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Last time we spent all, all of our time talking about apostles and prophets to show what apostles and prophets are and to show uh, uh, what exactly is in view here. And you remember I said what's in view here are apostles with a capital A and prophets with a capital P. What do we mean by that? Well, we're all apostles, and we're going to see this again in verse 12. We're all apostles in the in the respect that we're sent. We're being sent by Christ. And that's simply what it means. An apostolos, an apostle, is one who is sent So all of us in this really loose um, uh, definition are apostles. This would be with a lowercase a. We're all apostles. But the apostles that are meant here are the apostles with a capital A. These are just a select few of people, uh, 12. uh, There were 12 disciples who followed Jesus, if you will, who are around from the time of John's baptism to the time of the resurrection of the Lord. One betrays Jesus. He is replaced by Matthias, right? And there you see the criteria. This could only be a certain few individuals and only in a certain time. It's not possible uh, any longer for someone to be an apostle with a capital A. Now someone could bring up the apostle Paul. Wait, what about apostle Paul? Well, we covered that. And if, in, in 1 Corinthians 15.8, Paul describes himself as one who was untimely born. And I brought out the meaning of that word. That means abnormally born. Uh, it can also be translated miscarriage. And I hate using the word miscarriage in, in public. You know, I was thinking this morning as I was thinking this through in my mind. I so hate to use that word. But because they're, they're painful. It's a painful word. But that's really the point. Paul is using a word that doesn't describe normality. He's using a word that describes abnormality to show that, okay, he is an exception. This is an exception to the rule. It's important that we understand that. Why? Because the apostle is a vessel that God has given to the church in order to reveal the gospel remember i was teasing through my sermon last week some once in a while people will ask me and this doesn't happen every day it doesn't even happen probably it probably happens maybe once a year twice a year do you believe in apostolic succession in other words do i believe that an apostle with a capital a is given his gifts to another person who becomes a, an apostle with a capital a who gives another person his gifts will do i believe in that no But do I believe in apostolic succession? Yeah, in this limited way, that the apostles have written these things down, and we have these things in the New Testament. Ephesians 2.20, if you want to turn back there, you can. But what does Paul say there? He says that the church is built on the foundation of what? The apostles and the prophets, and that moves us to prophets. Who are these prophets? Well, these are men like Agabus, You know, we looked at Agabus last week. We don't have time to go into all that this week. But these are people who who the Lord had spoke to in such a way that they convey to the church God's revealed will, and it gets written down for us in the New Testament so that we have it. So that when we come up with the steps on Sunday morning, what do we turn to? We don't turn to just any book. What do we turn to? We turn to our Bibles, don't we? We turn to this book. This is the foundation of... Uh, of the church if you will the new testament church with christ jesus being the cornerstone being the most important uh, building block uh, of the foundation so this picks us up right where we left off uh, we have yet to talk about evangelists shepherds and teachers and i've made this distinction here because the apostles and prophets are gifts that are given for a limited time until the new testament is complete now that we have the new testament we have the apostles and prophets in our new testament but through the course of uh, this particular administration of the covenant of grace, of, uh, through this period of time, we have evangelists, we have shepherds, and we have teachers. Um, there have been one. There's one school of thought that has seen evangelists as being a temporary uh, gift. Some of you may have read about that. Um, Martin Lloyd Jones would be an example who would have argued for that. Um, But for the most part, and and Lloyd-Jones wouldn't have argued that there are no evangelists today, Um, but when I say evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, I'm going to be speaking with lowercase um, e, a lowercase s, a lowercase t. Um, Some of you will have pastors instead of shepherds. Some of our translations will say pastors. It's because the word can be uh, translated either way. Well, who are the evangelists, the shepherds, or the pastors and teachers, if you will? Well, I think we know the answer to that. Um, I was thinking it's just a wonderful a whole plethora of warm thoughts come over my mind as I look at these three things. It reminds me of being back in Geneva College taking those spiritual gift tests. Has anyone ever taken those tests? Yeah that was really popular twenty years ago, wasn't it? You take these spiritual gift tests and and um, they were a lot of fun actually as you as you got to know people in the class you know at Geneva. The more you got to know people, you'd take these gifts, these gift tests, and they would come back, and we'd all be discussing our our gifts. And what was really interesting is, you know, I, I can remember saying to a couple of my classmates, you know, where their gifts were in hospitality or another one was Gifts and prayer, and I'm like, you know, I can see that because you're like before we start class, you're always asking for prayer for somebody. You always want to pray for somebody, or you're always talking about having someone over in your home, and you know, the, the, it's it's really it's really marvelous and it's really wonderful. Um, as we think about evangelist shepherds and teachers, there's a couple of different schools of thought here. There's one school of thought that says the shepherds and teachers are one and the same. Another school of thought says that they're distinct. I wouldn't want to be dogmatic either way. However, I will tell you, I lean towards them being one and the same. And the reason for this is, is I think back of all of the teachers that I have had, the ones who have made the biggest difference in my life, have also shepherded me, especially at Geneva College. There was Dr. Scheidelman, which I think uh, you guys know, Doc, you know, Scott. Outstanding person. Um, you know, he's just an outstanding person. Did he teach me? Yes, he taught me. Did he shepherd me? Oh my goodness, did he shepherd me? And I would add to that, Doctor Jonathan Watt, who I had um, at, at Geneva College when I was doing my Bible College uh, uh, undergraduate work, and then I had him again. He was my Greek professor in seminary, and he is a—he's just an outstanding teacher. But was he only a teacher? No. No, um, he, in fact, I think I could even add in some ways he even ministered to Tammy. Tammy loved him. I mean, because he, he, he was so personable, wasn't he? I mean, one of the smartest guys you're ever going to come across in your life, period. And, but yet, very humble, um, doesn't draw attention to himself in any way, very personable. You know, I can remember leaving the seminary and Tammy saying, I really like Dr. Watt. He's just so personable. Her exact words. Uh, true statement. Was he a teacher? Yes. Was he a, a, a shepherd or a pastor? Yes. And another one to that. I would add to that list is uh, Denny Prateau, Doctor Denny Pratteau, who Tammy also knows and knows his wife. You know, was he a teacher? Oh yeah. He was my primary s- instructor in seminary. And what's really neat is since I've been doing these videos, you know, I've now done eight videos uh, on YouTube and got this YouTube channel started. Uh, the, you know these algorithms they 're always you know you 're being spied on all the time everything you do there there 's people watching you you know you you don 't think you 're crazy if you feel like there 's people watching you now if your right shoulder twitches maybe something 's up but if you can keep both shoulders steady and say someone 's watching me all the time actually it 's a true statement you 're being watched all the time that 's a comf- uncomfortable and creepy thought but um what is interesting is since I started doing these videos, I had this video pop up on my screen, and guess who it was? It's Denny Pertow. Now, I haven't seen him in years. Um, he retired shortly after I graduated. Last I heard, he had went to Colorado. I think it was Colorado. And I haven't seen him. I haven't seen him in years. And I see here he's got a, a YouTube channel I didn't know about. And there he is. And I had to push the play button, and then I heard that all-familiar voice. Um, Just sat and listened to him. I mean, I spent so many hours listening to him. But what impacts you more, or, or I think so more, is the shepherding that comes after that teaching. You know, I think we'd all agree if you think about some of the teachers you've had, even outside of the church, teachers that you've had um, in school, perhaps the ones that really made the impact on you, the ones that really invested in you, aren't they? You know, so I, I lean towards that. Both shepherds and teachers are the same here, but I wouldn't want to argue with anybody over this. If somebody says, "No, no, I believe they're just," that's fine. You know, it's fine. I'm not. Let's be eager to maintain the unity, right? Um, eager to maintain the unity here. Uh, We will one day know for sure, and that's where we're going here. What's the point? In verse 11, we're told that Christ has given us apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So there we begin to see the point in all of this. And one thing that we need to do here is we need to rescue a word, the word saint, We need to rescue that word. It's been held captive by this idea that saints are only super-Christians, that the saint is the one uh, who is the super-Christian. The saint is the one, or in some circles, the saint is the one who has to have performed at least one miracle. We need to rescue that word from the captivity of that line of thought because the New Testament doesn't teach that. Who are the saints, according to the New Testament? They are everyone who is in Christ Jesus. Because if they're not, then Paul's only writing to a select few of super-Christians. He's not writing to the rest of us. Because he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, how does this work? It's important that we understand this work, and going through this work, which I think we're pretty familiar with, is going to help us with something here in a couple of minutes that maybe we're not so familiar with. So let's take a look. Let's let's, just do this exercise. How is it that we can become saints? What is a saint, for example? A saint is someone who's been set apart as holy. The Greek word is hagios. And why share that with you? Because the verb, uh, to saint, someone... Is Hagiazo. You know, Hagias is the saint. To sanctify, if you will, is Hagiazo. Or we could put it better. We could say to sanctify is Hagiazo. How does this happen? How does this work? Or how comes it, as I love to ask every time I get opportunity. I love the how comes it stuff. Um, how comes it? Well, think about the cross and the stick figure. And I, I now when I do the cross and stick figure thing, I now have the unity. I've figured out a way to put the unity. It's real simple. But you have the cross, you have the stick figure. You have the cross, you have the repentant sinner, the one who is embracing Jesus for the first time, looking to Jesus, confessing their sins to Jesus. Okay, their sins go to Christ. He suffers in their place. They're done away with, right? Now this sinner has, has, has his or her sins taken away. Then Christ... Righteousness is given to the sinner, right? So that the sinner is now like Zechariah and Zechariah 3, clothed with a new garment. What is this new garment? It is the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, if you look back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, In this sense, our faith brings us into union with Christ, and this union is such a union that we are raised up with him and seated with him where? In Chester? Sort of, but that's not the point of the verse. It's in the heavenly places. That's some sanctification. You're set apart as holy, and you're seated with Christ in the heavenly place. Now, I think it's J.I. Packer. I don't remember who said it, but somebody said it. We'll let J.I. Packer take the credit for it. That theological points are often like coins. There's a head and a tails. I think it was J.I. Packer that said that. I don't remember where, but somebody can. if somebody remembers and somebody knows, let me know in the hallway. I, I keep meaning to look it up, and I don't think about it until this, like right now. <laughs> You'd rather I not look it up right now. But theological points are often like or, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, theological points are often like coins. There's two sides. In some cases, there's a, there's a human side and a divine side. And in the, in the case of sanctification, there is a positional side and there's a progressive side. Positionally, where are you? Positionally, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So when God looks at you, what does he see? He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And in this sense... You're never going to be any more sanctified than you are right now because you're clothed with the sanct- with, with the perfect holiness of Christ. That's what you're clothed with. That's what it means to be a saint. But then there's the other side of it, which is the progressive side, which is the side that we often think of. This is the side where some of the holiest of you will often say something like this to me. I know that I don't make much of a difference, or I know that... I'm far away, or I know that I'm all not that important, and you know how sometimes we can speak. You see, we need to rescue the word saint from that line of thinking. Everyone has been called. They're being equipped. Look at verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12. We're all being equipped for the work of ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. Now, someone said, well, I don't make videos. No, you're not being called to make videos. But you share the videos that are made. If you didn't share the video that was made, then somebody else, there's somebody who might not see it. And that's somebody who might not see it. I mean, I, I have gotten so much positive feedback from these videos. And... Listen, I wouldn't be getting it if it wasn't for some of you sharing it. And some of you who are sharing it were some of the ones who would come to me and say, I know that what I'm doing doesn't matter or make much of a difference. Well, you should talk to the person that come to me and say, hey, I saw your video. I'll give you another example, getting away from the videos. You're also the ones when you see, when you see a mess on the floor, you don't walk past it. Some would think, well, that's no big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. How come, how come you don't walk past it? Because lots of people are comfortable to walk past it, but you don't walk past it. You don't walk past it. What do you do? You immediately find something and you clean it up. Why do you do that? Because you want the place to look nice for the Lord and for his glory, and you will not want others to see it. Why? Because you're always thinking about God and you're always thinking about other people. That's why. Does that sound like somebody that's far away? Mm-mm. No. We need to rescue the word saint. From the captivity of those who think this is just a super Christian or someone who speaks and teaches or 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 somebody who makes videos or somebody who leads the music or somebody who does this or somebody who does that. Listen, we are all apostolic in the sense, look again at verse 12. We're all called, we're all being equipped for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And this is a tremendous privilege, by the way. God could build his kingdom without us if he wanted to just as easily. In fact, I would say that oftentimes we're in the way, aren't we? How often are we flubbing up? Some of might say, Rick, speak for yourself. I will. I am. I'll make a mess out of it. Give me the opportunity and I'll do it. How often is that the case? But the Lord has given us the privilege and the blessing of being a part of the building of his kingdom. And it hasn't been just given to a few super believers. It's been given to everyone who is in Christ. We all play a respective role in here, and all of us are important in this work. Do you see it there in verse 12? What's the point? Well, we've been given apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip every one of us for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, let's stop right there because we might scratch our heads in verse 13. In fact, the more familiar we get with verse 13 and the more familiar we get with chapter 4, the more I think we're going to scratch our heads in verse 13 because in verse 13 we're told, until we attain to the maturity or to the unity, until we attain to the unity, but in verse 3, we've already been told to maintain the unity. Now, someone's thinking this through, say, how are we to maintain something we haven't attained yet? How are we to maintain something that we haven't arrived at yet? How, how does this work? Well, Remember how sanctification has two different sides to it? There's the positional side, and, there's the, um, and then there's the progressive side. This unity has two sides to it too. And I can think of no better way to teach this than to give a simple illustration that maybe many of you have experienced. And that illustration is this. Have you ever gone on a trip somewhere and you bump into somebody and you discover they're a believer? Now, doesn't that just warm your heart? And you can stand and you can talk to them for a long time, can't you? Why? Because there is this unity You're part of the same family. Now, as you're talking, you'll you'll usually discover that they're holding on to some theological truths that are different than yours, right? Okay, that's the other side. And it's the other side that Paul's talking about. In one side, we're all being brought into one body, that unity has arrived. We're all brought into one body. We're into one family. You can drive out into the Amish country. You can drive somewhere hundreds of miles from here, wherever you can go. You bump into someone who's a believer, and suddenly you have unity with that person. You could talk to that person. You would leave your purse on the table. You wouldn't worry about this person stealing it, even though you've just met them. I mean, you have this wonderful kinship with this person, yet as you talk, You realize that there's some theological differences between you. And this is what Paul is getting at when he says, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. What is he talking about here? Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Well, faith in this particular passage is objective, not subjective. What's the difference? Subject of faith is when we are doing the believing. A lot of times we talk about faith, we're talking about our, our um, embracing Jesus in our hearts, our believing the truths of Scripture, if you will. But other times when faith is mentioned, it's mentioned like Jude 3, where it says the faith once delivered to the saints. That is what we're called to believe, These are the precepts and the tenets and the theological truths that we're called to believe. These objective uh, truths, if you will, is what is in view in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the objective truths and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Does that help it make sense? The knowledge of the Son of God. And this word knowledge, I spent a lot of time this week uh, looking at this single word knowledge, epigenosco. Some of you may have heard of Gnosticism or Gnostic. I don't want to go into Gnosticism. I only bring it up because of the word. It comes after the word gnosis. It means to know. Gnosis means to know. Epigenosis, if you will, uh, is a higher Uh, form of this knowledge, if you will, Uh, again, an illustration might help. Uh, Knowledge, gnosis, if you will, Uh, we can have knowledge of people. For example, I could have knowledge of a woman who grew up in New Cumberland who later moved to Virginia and then lived in Florida. I could know her birth date. I could know her mom's name. I could know a number of different facts about her and that's knowledge. But then I could invite her over for burgers. Well, someone's smiling, and I wished I'd quit it. But that was our first date, Tammy and I. I invited her over to the house. Believe it or not, I cooked for her. It was just burgers on the grill. And I had a local merchant help me with tater tots and some other stuff. I got I didn't expect her to say yeah. Come on, give me a break. I asked her if she would come over for burgers, and I didn't think she'd say yeah, man. I just didn't think she'd say yeah. And she said, sure, that sounds wonderful. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, now the pressure's on. (laughs) Now, I could have known her birthday. I could have known I knew her address. I could have known some things about her. But after that evening, um, you know, I cooked for her on the first date. She's been cooking for me ever since. I better quit it. I'll be cooking this afternoon. But you see my point. um, I think it's the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges that says that this particular knowledge is not just simply a knowledge about, but it's a knowledge that includes loving. It includes this component of love. It's a personal knowledge of that would include this love. And this rescues us from intellectualism. That's not what's in view here. And uh, intellectualism will not get it done. Sitting around with a a theological curiosity, as I said in my pastoral prayer, uh, that's not what we're to be on about. Theology is wonderful in so much as it enables us to know God better. Does that make sense? That's the whole point. God has revealed himself to us, not so that we would store up information and become like encyclopedias that just spit it out in this cold and, and, and really um, um, unchanged way, but he has given us this information. He's given us these great truths. He's revealed himself to us in this way so that we would come to know him better, so that we would come to love him more. Does that make sense? Now, as we come to know him better, as we come to know him more, what exactly does that look like? Well, verses 14 and 15 help us with this. If you look at verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Doctrine. You know, um, a number of years ago, someone got it in their head that doctrine divides, therefore, away with doctrine. And the church has suffered ever since that idea. It suffered in a tremendous way. That's unbiblical. Um, if we get away, if we throw out doctrine, we're soon not even going to be able to tell the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. And now that's where I listen to people talk, and I sometimes wonder if they have in their minds any distinction between a believer and an unbeliever. If you get rid of doctrine, you're going to lose the ability. Does doctrine divide? Well, of course it does. It's going to divide sheep from goats. It's going to divide uh, people who call on the Lord from people who don't call on the Lord. Uh, we can just go down and, and through all of these various biblical distinctions, of course it divides. It's meant to divide. It's meant to separate. There has to be a separation so that the, uh, so that if I'm an unbeliever, I need this separation so I can see that there's a difference between Joey over here. I need to see this difference. This difference evangelizes me. I see Joey's got something I don't have. I see Joey believes something that I don't believe. We need these distinctions. But even after we we get away from that, but then there's all kinds of theological distinctions. We can make distinctions between primary things and secondary things. Listen, let's be eager to maintain unity with everyone who embraces the primary things. Right? Right? That's what we said when we were back there. Uh, now, what about all these secondary things? You know, who should we baptize? We have differences of opinion about that. And you can go down through the list. Should we all be uh, wearing blue? Uh, should all of our ladies not cut their hair and wear blue uh, dresses? Uh, I don't know where blue come. Where's blue come from? Anybody know? They're always. They're usually blue. Uh, I'm not making fun. I just. I'm only asking if somebody knows i don't want to make fun, but aren't they always they're always blue and you know there these are theological differences that we have, and what Paul's pointing to here is that we have been given apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip us until we all attain to the unity of the faith, that is, to the unity of the precepts and the theology that's been set forth in the New Testament. You see, we're not to throw out doctrine here. This is the important thing. We're to be on about doctrine. We're also to be on about unity. this, This particular study has really impacted me. It's impacted me in the way that I say things up here. I think a year ago, I, I, I might have made that comment in a way that did sound like I was making fun of somebody. Why do they always wear blue dresses? I'm not making fun. One the things I, one the things I there, were, there were people who used to come into our store that were dressed in a certain way. As soon as they come into the store, I realized they were from a certain group of people. You know, one thing that I've always appreciated about them was, was their, their, their idea of, of holiness, their idea that we should be pursuing holiness. I oh, always so appreciated that. Um, they wanted to be dressed right. Yeah, they wanted to be dressed when they, when they When they came to church, they wanted to be dressed right. When they went out of the community, they wanted to be dressed right. Now, we could say all kinds of other things. We could look at negatives to that, too. But one thing I'm so thankful for is I think we need to be adults here, and we need to always be addressing one another in verse 2 with humility and with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, Right? Oh, how we have, how I can see how I have failed so many times in doing that. But where is God taking us? Verse 14 tells us he's taking us away from childhood. He's taking us away from immaturity so that we're not tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, if we don't teach doctrine, we're not going to grow and that's why you, you can, you know, I've heard, I've heard seminary professors, I think it was Joel Beakey. Joe, I think Joel Beakey said this. Don't hold me to it. But he said he knows a lot about the pastor whenever he meets a student. In other words, whenever he meets a student, he knows a lot about the student's pastor when he meets the student. I could put it another way. Uh, let me put it this way. Uh, this has been a number of years ago. Tammy and I first learned about the Dunns, uh, Mark and Jessica Dunn, who were who served right across the river over at uh, uh, First EP for, I think they were there for 10 years. I think Mark was there. And Tammy and I said one night, we're like, we need to meet them. We need to just go and hang out with them and make our give our phone number to them if they would ever want to hang out together. Let's go. So we went to an evening service, and we hung out with them. And Mark Dunn said something to me that night that I won't forget. You know, in his Irish accent, he said to me, he said, you're a Westminster man. Now, he didn't really know me at that point. Now, what did he mean that I'm a Westminster man? Well, we had been talking about the catechism, the shorter catechism. And he was just floored that I even knew what it was. He was floored. And we were talking about the truth that's in the well, what's this? what's the shorter catechism all about? It's about doctrine, isn't it? But unfortunately, the church has bought into this. all. Oh, don't give me this doctrine. If you want to teach on some subjects, the place will fill up. But you want to teach on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and this is the reason why so many churches don't do it, it. is because the attendance just drops to nil. It does. It just drops to nothing. And it's because we don't really believe some of the things we say we believe. Because if we did If we really believe that this is what brings on maturity, well, then it would swell up in attendance whenever we began to teach these things. See how hard this text hits us? Us, me included? Me included? It hits us hard, doesn't it? How are we to grow? Verse 15. Verse 14 is the negative. Verse 15 is the positive. We're going to grow speaking the truth in love. Speaking what? Speaking the truth in love. There's going to be differences among us. And at the end of the day, we are going to be right about some of these things. We're going to be wrong about others. But one day we... As we meet each other, there's not going to be any degree of difference between what we believe. We'll have that unity in verse 3. We'll have this kinship that we enjoy. You can travel 150 miles, 200 miles. Tammy and I were down in Georgia at a place called... Has anyone ever heard of Jasper, Georgia? It's one of my favorite places. It's a suburb. It's about an hour and 15 minutes north, was it? Northeast of Atlanta. Atlanta. And we had our dog, Baxter, at the time, and we wanted to try out this restaurant. And um, it was really, really hot. Tammy went in and ordered the food and got to talking with the owner. And the owner wanted to know why she was taken out. I forget what the conversation went. But Tammy told her we had a dog and that I was out there waiting. And you know what this woman did? She said, grab your dog and meet me out on the patio. And she she had us we she allowed us to bring our dog out onto the patio. And then she herself, the owner of the restaurant, waited on us. And the whole time she was waiting on us, she was evangelizing us. She knew we were from near Pittsburgh. And what was her assumption? Well, <laughs> once you get up above I think she said Asheville, right? Once you get up above Asheville, it gets dark, you know, and and uh we never did, I don't think we ever did disclose to her that we were in ministry because we were so enjoying her. Um, but there we were, 500 and some miles away, um, and we, we had come upon a believer, and we had this kinship with him. That's verse 3. Um, some of the things that she said, I I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't embrace those things. I have some different ideas about those things. That's verse 13. But where God is taking us and where we are going to be one of these days is there's not going to be no distinction between verse 3 and verse 13. And that's the beauty of the church. And in the meantime, we're not all going to look like we're all wearing the same clothes. You see, there's going to be a unity, there's going to be a diversity, and we are going to be so completely unified. There's the, you know, the, the things that divide us now, whether we baptize uh, children or we don't baptize children, or whether we believe in amillennialism or premillennialism or whatever we believe in, this ism or that ism or this ism or that ism, those things are going to be gone. We're going to be right about a couple of these things, but let's let, look, verse 2, let's be humble. We are going to be wrong about some of these things. Maybe we're going to be wrong about a whole bunch of them. I hope not. I really hope not. I have to give an account for this thing. But in the meantime, we've got to push forward. We've got to be pushing forward. We've got to be pushing forward on this unity because, you see, it's this unity in doctrine. It's this doctrine. It's this. It's through this speaking the truth and love as we take these gifts that have been given to us, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And by the way, the shepherds and teachers don't have to be alive if they've written books how often have you heard me give thanks before we study the catechism? Thanks for the pastors and teachers that we've been given, who have written these things down. You know, I got—I learned this from Charles Spurgeon a whole bunch of years ago. Charles Spurgeon said that he loved to go into his study with his friends. Who were his friends? There were all this—all those books that he had in his library. There was all the pastors and teachers who had written books. Who Charles Spurgeon inherited a lot of books from his grandfather and his father. And he, he used to love to spend hours in those books, and he came to know those pastors and teachers, and they were his friends, just like I have Denny Prato, and I can watch a video of Denny Prato, and I can hear his voice, and I can, it just puts me right back in his classroom. But I can also read Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's another friend. I never got to hear him speak or preach, but I could, read, I could, I could sit and, and befriend Jonathan Edwards, who I never got to hear, or, or Charles Spurgeon. See Now, what are we doing as we're doing these things? We're growing in doctrine. As we grow in doctrine, what's going to happen? We're going to mature, right? We're going to grow, amen? I wanted to get to, I knew it was wishful thinking to get to 2 Peter, but we'll do that another time. I think this is a good time to to close, amen? Heavenly Father, we so thank you, Lord, for the beauty of where you're taking us, Father. And, oh, Father, I pray that, Lord, you will work this unity of the faith, of the knowledge of of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will work this in our hearts, Lord. We would not just be sitting here to gather information. We'd not be just sitting here to scratch theological itches. But that, Lord, the information that we get from your word, from uh, these passages that you've given us, you've given us by the gift of the Apostle Paul, Uh, you've given us these things that father we would come to find ourselves knowing you all the better because we know your truths better we know you better because we know these precepts better we know you better because we understand more and more of your word we come to understand more and more of you well father we pray that you would give increase in our hearts lord as we go forth from this place, that you would cause the many things that were said to reverberate in our hearts and our minds, and that, Lord, uh, the soil of our hearts would be conditioned by you to be good soil that is fruitful 30, 60, and 100 times over. So, Father, do this work in our hearts, Lord, that we would find ourselves with this uh, epignosco love and knowledge, Lord. It would not just be knowledge about you, but it would be a knowledge that We grow in love towards you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.